the way that I would guide people to try to do something for themselves is to do something where you don't have to ask anybody's permission for something, where there aren't parameters put in place by somebody else in which to make something. And if you can sit down and try to do something it, with, those, with, those, with that lack of parameters, it might help guide you to something meaningful. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Overtime, Dribble's official podcast. I'm Dan Cederholm, your host, and this is episode 29 with Debbie Millman. Where do I even begin with Debbie? Uh, she's had an amazing career uh, over the years, uh, was named one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company. She's the founder and host of Design Matters, uh, the first and longest running podcast about design. She's interviewed over 400 artists, designers, and cultural commentators. She's the author of six books. She uh, co-founded uh, with Stephen Heller the world's first graduate program in branding at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. Um, she's appeared in publications like the New York Times, New York Magazine, Print Magazine. Uh, she's a former president of the AIGA. Uh, you know, it goes on and on and on. And Debbie's just an incredible uh, person, extremely humble and um, very candid in our in our talk about. Uh, everything from predicting her life's work in a drawing at age eight <laughs> through dealing with rejection and failure in her career and design matters and, and how that got going and how that's uh, been going strong and how persistence can can mean everything uh, in your career in design. So we uh, we thank her for being on. Um, it was a real pleasure to, to, to talk with her. Uh, this week's episode is brought to you uh, by Wix.com. Push the limits of design and start creating beautiful, impactful websites that are ne- uniquely yours with Wix. And we'll be talking uh, a little bit more about Wix further into the show. I also wanted to take a minute to mention Hangtime Seattle. This is Dribble's forthcoming uh, one-day event in Seattle on May 15th that we've lined up. It's our uh, second event like this. We did one in Boston last year. It's a very great event, a full day of speakers plus a, an after party. Uh, this year, we've we've already uh, locked in at Aaron Traplin, Dana Tanamachi, Koi Vin, Nathan Yoder, and, and several more. Um, you're going to want to go to dribble.com slash hangtime to get tickets. Um, there's an early bird discount running currently. Uh, so please go over there and get tickets for that. It's going to be a great event if you're in Seattle or near Seattle or want to go to Seattle. Uh, you're going to want to be there. And um, the whole entire Dribble team will also be in attendance as well. So it's going to be a great time. But for now, let's get on to our chat with Debbie Millman. Debbie Millman, welcome to Overtime. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be here. Oh, it's awesome to have you here. Such an honor. Um, you're you have such an amazing career and so many stories, and I'm just really excited that you've taken the time today to talk to us. So super excited. Um, and and you're you know you you're a host of Design Matters, which is the first and longest running design podcast, which is super impressive. You've interviewed over 400 people for, for that show. I'm wondering, cause I'm kind of nervous right now because of that, <laughs> uh, because you, you're, you're this, like the veteran here and I'm, I'm not. And, uh, but I'm wondering after, so 400 people, 
do you do you get nervous? Has anybody made you nervous on this show, or is it like second nature at this point? Oh my goodness, have you listened to my recent episode with Marina Abramovich? I was so nervous that the first word out of my mouth I flubbed. The first word. It was oh. like Marulabla. <laughs> and and so um she was so kind and generous about it. So um, first of all, I left this in the episode. So if anybody listens to it, it's the very first thing you hear. You hear me flub, and then you hear Marina say, Okay, Debbie, breathe. And then I go like this. <gasps> She's like, No, 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 no. Breathe from the center. And then we start breathing together. And she's she goes, In one, two, three, exhale. <laughs> Inhale. Exhale. Okay. Right. Now you can ask me question. <laughs> wow. Wow. Is it is it weird that I was breathing there along with you? I, <laughs> I, I think I need to do that, actually. That's so, brilliant. So, yeah, you could hear. I was so nervous that <laughs> I, I couldn't even say one word without making a mistake. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I... I <laughs> I think I need some breathing. So that must have helped, though the rest of the uh, the rest of the episode. Uh, um, the well, I was moment. so self conscious about breathing. <laughs> 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 I think it just made it even even worse for me. But she was so kind right. that that somehow evened it out somehow somehow. <laughs> well, that's great. I mean, after so this is great for me to hear because I figured if you've interviewed four hundred amazing people. Okay, Dan, um, breathe. You know, yeah, exactly. I, I need, I, I, okay. I need to do that as well. Um, so that's incredible. And, and, uh, I want to start off really with, um, if you don't mind telling us the story of this drawing you did when you were eight years old, I believe. Yeah. Eight um, years old. and it's incredible because, uh, well, a, it's impressive because you were eight and, um, it actually looks amazing there's like a lot of detail in it i know i was but, really um, impressed by it <laughs> yeah i was super impressed and and i love the story behind this because you drew this um and it kind of predicted your your life's work in a way yeah right? i really did I it, it forecast yeah. everything that i'm i'm i've done in my adult life well to give it to give some background it's a drawing that i found um, my mother moved from Queens to Florida, like all good Jews, and she <laughs> um, gave me a box of ephemera that she'd kept in her basement that I didn't even know that she had. And when I went through it, it was book reports and report cards and all sorts of different ephemera. And I came across um, this folded up piece of paper, construction paper. I don't know if you remember that from your childhood. Yeah, and yeah. I I opened it up. It was it was very thin, and I very gingerly opened it up because it was in it was folded in four, and I saw this drawing, and it was something that I had no recollection of of doing, but it was clearly my style. And when I looked at it, I realized that without knowing what the future had in store for me at eight years old. I predicted a lot of what I ended up doing. And I'm a native New Yorker, but at the time I was living in Queens, Howard Beach, Queens, and had only visited the city maybe one or two times to visit my dad when he was working at a pharmacy called City Drug in right near Carnegie Hall. And so I guess that was my vision of what the city looked like. 
And so I drew a street scene, a, a city street scene, a Manhattan street scene with um, stores on on the street and vehicles driving and people walking. And I'm walking with, I, I believe I was walking with my mom. I drew a little girl and a mom and she's wearing a, a very popular Barbie outfit of the time, which I believe is called Tangerine Dream. And... <laughs> I Great. I then labeled all of the all of the various buildings and and vehicles so the bank was labeled bank and the dry cleaners was labeled dry cleaners um <laughs> and the bus was na- labeled bus and the taxi was labeled taxi but then I I drew a delivery truck a big delivery truck which said potato chips on it but in addition to the words potato chips I also drew the Lay's potato chips logo. And so there I am looking at this drawing like 40 something years later. And I realize, okay, I am living in Manhattan and I go to the dry cleaners and the bank and I'm on buses and subways and taxis. And I spent most of my career drawing logos for a living. <laughs> so there you have it. Just trust your inner artistic instincts when you're little and it will tell you everything about what you should be doing. I love it. I love that um, because I, I grew up in rural Vermont. So I'm trying to think like I, my drawing of the world back then would have been, you know, green hills and blue sky and that's it. But your, yours has so much um, color and just energy, you know, it like captures the, the city, which is awesome. Um, and the lays, the lays, so you were drawing logos at eight years old, really. Um, did, did that, did what, from that moment on, was that sort of apparent that you would, you would go into design and, and creating, uh, brands and things? Um, no, I, I, at that time had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, but I was making everything at that point. I made a magazine with my best friend named Debbie. Uh, her name was Debbie, rather. And we named our magazine Debutante, which um, I thought was <laughs> oh, wow. really clever and still a really yeah. good name for a magazine. And what's funny is years and years and years, decades later, she reached out to me on Facebook hearing, I guess, either reading or hearing about um, my talking about the magazine. It was like, oh, I remember that. It was so much fun. And I was like, do you have a copy of it? And she's like, no. I'm like, oh, damn. You know, I would have loved to <laughs> talk about finding the future, right? So I, I made magazines and I used to direct little shows with my siblings for my family and we'd be singing and I'd do the set decorations and <laughs> I made perfume from baby oil and rose petals. I mean, I was always making things. I'm, I think that's what makes me happiest even to this day, just making things. Yeah. Just being, being creative. So being, so definitely creative creativity was a big, big part of your. Yeah. Your I mean, I didn't, obviously. I didn't know that I'd end up being a designer or even working in the world of branding because back at that time in my life, I didn't know that those disciplines existed. I mean, I yeah. thought maybe I'd do yeah. something with art or something with writing. I knew I'd like to write poetry, but I had no idea. And, um, as, as I think, much as my parents might have loved me, I don't, I don't know that they gave me particularly good guidance um, about what was possible. I was extremely insecure about what I could and couldn't do. And really, from a very, very early age, operated 
out of a sense of fear as opposed to abundance or, or power. Mm. I was always mm. worried that I wasn't good enough to do pretty much anything and have had to spend quite a long time trying to deal with that and understand it and, and try to get over it. Yeah, that sounds familiar. That's um, imposter syndrome, right? Um, it's sort of a, that's the way I think of it. Like, I can't be an author or a designer or those are those are things other people do. Yeah. Um yeah, and I so I I did I did read or, or hear somewhere along the line um you were talking about failure versus rejection and I think you were you were uh saying that rejection in your in your mind rejection is sort of worse than failure. Uh, as well, a, I don't know that one is worse than the other, or, but they're very different. I mean Rejection yeah. is when somebody says to you, no, we don't want you or we don't, you're not good enough. You're, you know, you're not the right fit, whatever it is. And that is something that's, that tends to be external. Failure is a sense of, I think, giving up. You, know, you can only say you failed once you give up. In the mm-hmm. meantime, you're still trying. You might have obstacles and hurdles that you have to overcome, but you basically throw in the towel and say, okay, I've, I've done everything I can do and I, I don't want to do any more. Um, and so that's self, self-directed self in a lot of ways. It might be as a result of marketplace conditions or any number of things running out of money, but you still are fundamentally making the decision that this is it, I'm done. Mm. Whereas rejection, somebody else is telling you, you're done, we don't want you. And, yeah. and I, so I think they're very different things. And for a long time, I thought that a whole bunch of the things that I wanted to do that I wasn't able to do were as a result of failure. And I realized, no, it's actually not it. It was a result of being rejected. And so it's up to me then to decide if I want to ultimately take that stance of being rejected and have it be the final stance. And Or do I want to say, you know what, I, I still want to do this anyway, and I'm going to figure out a different way to do it. And yeah. and that's pretty much what I've tried to do, despite mm. quite a lot of rejection, even rejection that I still get today. So it's not it's not like easy street. You know, you get to a certain point and you have some success and therefore that just begets more and more success. It certainly helps to have some success in terms of credibility and and some sense of of accomplishment internally, but it doesn't mean that everything else that you try to do, you're going to be able to do smooth sailing. Hmm. Hmm. That's both good and bad to hear, actually. <laughs> For me, because uh, looking, seeing, like if Debbie Millman gets rejected, what? Oh my God! I get I, rejected. You know I, I get rejected on a regular basis, and I and I'm not surprising joking. to yep, me though. Yep, I mean, yep. you know, because I, I do. You've had so much success and experience, and uh, you know, confidence. I would, I would gather from that. Well, I mean, confidence is a really slippery slope, and I've talked about this before, but uh, for, for your listeners that, that might not have listened to my podcast or, or even know anything yeah. about me, it's worth really worth talking about again. And that is a conversation that I first had with um, a really incredible writer named Danny Shapiro, who writes magnificent memoirs. And she was on the show a couple of years ago, 
And we, after, after every episode of Design Matters, I do the show, I tape it live in front of a, a student audience, sort of like the way James Lipton does um, inside the actor's studio. So there's, a, right, there's an right. audience there. Yep. And after I'm done with my interview, we come out of the sound studio and we sit in front of the students and the students have an opportunity to ask my guests direct questions. Um, and mm. the guest chooses who to, who to pick. And so it's, you know, I'm not part of that. I'm just sitting there observing. And um, somehow the conversation with Danny um, after the podcast was taped um, came came upon the topic of confidence. And, and I wish that I taped this because it's really one of the most significant conversations I've ever had. But oh, wow. um, Danny, Danny ended up saying that she felt that confidence was overrated. And that immediately um, piqued my interest. At that time, yeah. there were a whole slew of books that had just come out on confidence and I'd gotten them all and I was avidly reading them. And when she said that confidence was overrated, I was like, whoa, what, what do you mean? And she felt that if if you really look at it, most sort of obviously confident people are kind of often obnoxious. And, <laughs> and I agreed. And what she felt was more important than confidence was courage. And and I asked her why. And she felt that courage is is taking a step into doing whatever it is you want to do without knowing whether or not you're going to be successful. And mm. that's more important. You know, people wait for confidence to be able to do something. And so I started to think, well, what is confidence? What is confidence? And it took me about a year to come up with a definition that I felt was accurate. And so I feel that confidence is really the result of one thing, and that is the, re- the successful repetition of any endeavor. Mm. And once you have successfully repeated any endeavor you then begin to expect that you can do that. And that's confidence, the expectation that you're going to be able to do something to completion and do it well. And and so the best example that I can give people is, is driving. You know, when we start driving, the first time we get behind the wheel, most of us are really nervous. We turn on the ignition. We have this vehicle that we are now in command of, this huge instrument of possible destruction and and we have to we have to to run that we have to manage that and even when we take our driver's license test most people are really nervous because they don't know if they're going to pass or not because there's not that confidence that we've done this so many times before that we're going to successfully accomplish this endeavor mm. but after a couple of months of driving then we have what I call car confidence. So every time we get into a car, we don't think, man, you know, I hope I don't kill someone today. We, <laughs> we have the sense that we can drive successfully. And I think that's with any endeavor. You do something the first time. There's n- I can't even think of anything that humans do the first time that we do successfully. We can't walk successfully. We can't talk successfully. We can't do almost anything successfully. And so why would we think that something that requires a great deal of skill is going to be the the one thing that we can do (laughs) without practice? And so I think that Danny's right. Courage is far more important than confidence because you have to take that step into Mm. the sense of whatever nervousness you have, whatever fear you have to be able to then make that attempt, potentially fail, and then do it again anyway, or keep trying until you get it right, if you want it badly enough. Yeah, that's, that's brilliant. I, I totally, 
totally agree. And I, I actually failed my first driving test. So that story makes, <laughs> makes even more sense to me. Uh, because I, I didn't, I had to have the, uh, courage to go back again, I guess, and, and pass it. But, um, so I wanted to pause here and tell you more about our sponsor for this week's episode. It's Wix.com. And with Wix, the web is your playground. Start with a blank slate and design your website in any layout you want. Work with advanced features like retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, and sophisticated design effects. Each feature is intuitive to use, so you're in control from design to live. With Wix, you'll have real creative freedom to tell your story online exactly the way you envisioned it. Push the limits of design and start creating beautiful, impactful websites that are uniquely yours. Go to Wix.com slash Dribble to get started today. That's Wix.com slash Dribble. Wix, what will you create? You know, you've, you've been doing Design Matters for 13 years. Yeah. Is that right? February 4th, uh, it will be 13 years. Wow, which is incredible because back then, I don't, was podcast even a word when you first started? I don't know that it was a word. Um, yeah. I mean, I was recording the show on an internet radio network, a fledgling internet radio network, network called Voice America. And I had gotten cold called by a producer there thinking that they were offering me an opportunity to do the show. But what they were really doing was offering me an opportunity to pay them money to produce a show for me. And essentially wow. Wow. give me right. the sell me the airtime, and I at the time was feeling really um, creatively bereft. I was everything I was doing at that point in my career was commercial, and all of the non-commercial endeavors that I had been doing for for most of my life, whether it be painting or writing you know, or drawing, you've or been anything, doing design matters um, had fallen for... to the wayside in this um, quest that I had at that point to try to make a success of myself professionally. And after a decade of doing that, I had some success and was really grateful for that financial success and professional success, but felt that my soul was dying creatively. And so when I Mm -hmm. had this opportunity that I hadn't expected pop up offering me this chance to do something that I'd never done before because I had some money saved. I thought, why not invest in myself and perhaps do something that I could learn from or, or just experiment with. And so I started doing the show. The show was recorded live on Friday afternoons at three o'clock Eastern time. And then it was Mm -hmm. rebroadcast another time during the week at like 2 a.m. And so unless you were listening to the radio, the internet radio at the time I was being broadcast, you couldn't hear the show. And so people started asking me if there was a way I could post it somewhere so that they could listen to the show when it wasn't live. And I thought, oh, let me start putting it up on iTunes, sort of like the way new musicians were putting up their digital files of their music. And right. a couple of other people were doing that as well. And I think that there are maybe, I think there are less than 10 podcasts still recording that started back then. I, I think on Wikipedia, there's a list of podcasts and the year that they started. And I saw that Design Matters was on it, which made me very, very happy. But wow, I think that podcasts started being recorded, I think, in either 2003 or 2004, and I wow. think that there are less than ten of us that are that have been continually broadcasting since then. Wow, that's incredible. 
And and what's really interesting about this too is I, I you know I remember hearing you speak. Um, you actually spoke at our Hang Time conference for the Dribbles Hang Time in Boston, and um, you were talking about persistence, right? Like you know, if someone came to you and said, "How how do how do you know? I want to start a podcast. How do I how do I get?" to the point where you are with design matters and how, how would you answer that? I guess. Well, I, I say that anything worthwhile takes a long time. I grew up in public as a podcaster. My first mm. 100 episodes, many of them are unlistenable in, in my opinion. And I still keep them up there in an archive called the design matters archive on iTunes. And the sound quality is really terrible because who knew that, podcasting would be podcasting back then. And I was recording the show initially in 2005 with two landlines, you know, handsets. (laughs) Wow. Oh, really? Really? Yes. Yes. Like a plugged in phone. Yes. Yes. So I would call a phone number in Arizona where my producers were from a landline and my guest would do the same. And we would have a conversation (laughs) through the telephone lines that was connected in Arizona by the producers at Voice America. And back then, I really felt like I was recording an episode of Wayne's World. I mean, it was so prehistoric. (laughs) And we had the sensation of, I don't know if you have ever been on a landline in in a home with with more than one phone and two people get on the same landline at the same time to, you know, talk to grandma and you hear that echo of the two voices. Well, that was what it was like to record my shows. The first, (laughs) at least the first 50, I think. And then I got some slightly better equipment and it was somewhat better, but still really spotty. And I used to get a lot of comments back when you, when I first started, people started uh, rating and commenting on iTunes and they'd be like, great content, but what's with the sound, man? It's terrible. (laughs) And so finally in 2009, I was invited to bring the show to designobserver.com by the late, great Bill Drentel. And Mm. he invited me to bring the show to to Design Observer, but with the proviso that I improved the sound quality. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so he introduced me to a producer named Curtis Fox, who at the time was doing work with The New Yorker and the Poetry Foundation. And he became my producer and he's been my producer ever since. So we've been working together now for nine years. Wow. So we've, well, done, we've done about 300 episodes together. And then my previous archive is that other 400. But I do keep yeah. it up so people can listen. I, you know, I grew up as a podcaster in public and – I think, I hope that I've improved over time and and learned how to really conduct a conversation that is meaningful and and offer something that people just don't hear everywhere else. I try not to ask my guests the same questions that I read in my research. What I prefer to do is actually ask them about their answers so that we go into Mm. something deeper and a bit more intimate. Yeah, yeah. All right, I'm throwing my list away then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's, I think it's that's very possible that though, your listeners might not have ever heard anything I've ever said before. So, it, in some ways, I think I do think it's important to to talk about a person's origins and, but to try to do it in a way that makes it feel a little fresh, yeah. a little fresh, if possible. <laughs> but you know, yeah. you can be as stale as you want with me. I'm cool. 
<laughs> no, no, no. No, I think for, I think for you it's it's uh it, it's hard because there's so much there's so many things directions to go in and because you've had such a um uh, haphazard diverse career, career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and doing all sorts of things. So I'm looking at a, a list of topics here, and I'm like, there's a lot of cool stuff that that I hope we can dig into. Yeah, so per- persistence, I, I think that's you know important, like especially when when young designers, you know, they uh, through Dribble, for instance, they they would say, how how do I you know how do I make a name for myself? How do I hard work, hard work hard for work, a long right? period of time? It's very rare to have the Jessica Walshes and Jessica Hishes and the Timothy Goodmans who come out of the gate and hit the ball out of the park first 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 pitch. Um, it's really rare for every one of those. There's probably a hundred or 200 or 300,000 people that are slogging away at trying to figure it out. And to those people, because I was one of those people, I say, keep trying and I, and keep trying with self-generated work. I don't think it's possible to make a name for yourself doing work for other people. I think that the way you make a name for yourself is doing original work, on your own, which doesn't mean you have to quit your job to do it. I was doing design matters while I had two full-time jobs, one at Sterling Brands and one at the School of Visual Arts. So I had a day job at, 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 at Sterling and a night job at SVA, where, I was run, where I, I've been running a, a graduate program. So you make the time to do what you want to do. And, and that gets back to the other thing that I say all the time, which is, you know, busy is a decision. If you say, I'm too busy to make self-generated work or to make work that I feel is is different or or attempts to be original in some way, then it's just not a priority. It's just not something you really, really, really want to do because we yeah. somehow find the time to watch Game of Thrones or House of Cards or Homeland or whatever it is. And mm-hmm. so, you know, if we have time to binge watch a TV show or spend three hours last night watching the Grammys, you know, we have time to make work. Yeah. Yeah. You have to, if you love what you do and you believe in it, then, then it, you know, being busy doesn't seem like a, a chore. Right? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like it's not really work then. It's it's really a yeah. labor of love. Now, that being said, I do have to really be clear that I am not married and I don't have children. And that does make my time a bit more elastic. But mm-hmm. I do yeah, feel yeah. that because I ran a business for 22 years of at, at one point 150 people and a graduate program with 20 plus students, it, it did make my time a little bit more complicated and restricted, but it was still important enough to me to try to make something that was non-commercial, that was from my heart without restrictions. I think the thing that you can do, the, the way that the way that I would guide people to try to do something for themselves is to do something where you don't have to ask anybody's permission for something, where there aren't parameters put in place by somebody else in which to make something. And if you can sit down and try to do something it, with, those, with, those, with that lack of parameters, it might help guide you to something meaningful. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And that's actually an interesting um, opposing opinion about, well, some people say, well, you shouldn't, 
you shouldn't show work that isn't real, you know, if it's not what from is a real? client what is or real something. Mean? Or, you know, if you're creating yeah. a, a, a visual essay, if you're creating um, a graphic novel, if you're creating some type of visual identity for something that you've created, how is that not real? You know, how is that? I mean, I think that real is is a subjective word. If you If you mean it's not being sold in the marketplace and people are buying it, well, then I don't know that design matters would qualify because it's free. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I, I love that. I, I think- mean, how did, how did dribble come about? How did, how did that happen? You know, if somebody yeah. had said early on, well, you know, who are you making this for? Is it real? I mean, yeah, true, true. Yeah, no, that was, real is was on a spectrum, certainly a side you know, project. Like, like and, gender and, and, yeah, and yeah. identity. It's, I think real is, is on a spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's, that's good news for everybody that's creative. I think you got to start making stuff, even if it's just for you initially. And Um, then the other part of it is why are you doing what you're doing? If the goal is fame and fortune, it's, mm. it's not really a, 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 a good discipline to, to be experimenting in, you know, there aren't that many graphic <laughs> designers that are, you know, independently wealthy. Um, you know, you <laughs> might, if, if, if fame and fortune is really your, your end game, then, then maybe go, going into entertainment is a better, a better bet. Um, mm-hmm. I think that meaning making is, is sort of what designers do. And if you're making yeah. something that's meaningful, then that's, that's the reward. Yeah. I mean, financial, financial independence is, is an amazing thing to have, but if that's the goal, you, you very well may risk creating something that's meaningful because you're in the pursuit of other things. And, and I, I spent a lot of time in the pursuit of other things, mostly because I was terrified of not being self-sufficient and I wasted a lot of time in that regard. You know, I, Hmm. I felt that safety and security was the most important thing to me for a very long time because I didn't feel that inside. The one thing I can say is the pursuit of safety and security does not come with a bank account. It doesn't, it doesn't get solved with a bank account. That's what I mean. It's something that you have to work on that goes way beyond what you think you need in order to feel or accomplish that. And that, can only come inside. I mean, I remember when I was in my early 20s, I remember thinking, oh, if I only had $1,000 in the bank, I would feel safe and secure. And, you know, that was in the 80s. It was a long time ago. $1,000 was a lot more money than it is now. But then yeah. as soon as I, I I had that, it was like, well, maybe I need 2000 you know, because mm, yeah. those things don't really make you feel safe and secure. If you feel insecure, you have to work on why you feel insecure. Yeah, and and then it's four thousand, and then you, yeah, you're never yeah. you're never secure. Exactly, you don't work it's on that it's a hedonic treadmill, and <laughs> you always need more and more and more to fill you up. Hmm. Yeah. Boy, well, I'm really taking you down a buzzkill here, aren't I? No, 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 no. Actually, I I look at it the other way. I look at it as encouraging for, you know, I think I think as a young designer, and, and I was in this boat too. Um, you know, very intimidated by, um, 
just the industry and, and how, how, how do people break in? How do they get to where they are? Um, you know, I didn't go to school for much of anything actually, but, oh, but I, I went to so school, I you know, my degrees are in, my, my degrees are in Russian literature and English literature. I, I joke now that I have a degree in reading. Oh, wow. <laughs> I didn't study design. <laughs> See, that's great to hear. So that's also great to hear. Cause I think once you have been persistent for, for a certain amount of time, you, you realize that, you know, people got to where they are from, from, like you said earlier, from working hard and putting yourself out there, uh, and taking the risk and, and, um, and going back to, uh, you know, Danny Shapiro's courage, you know, having courage to take the risk. I think that that's something that everyone can do. Uh, I mean, it's not easy for everyone, but, um, you know, it's something that everyone's capable of, of, of doing, which is encouraging, I think. What did you go to school for? I went to school for, uh, funny enough, audio engineering. Oh, interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I was a musician and I just wanted to play music. And, you know, part of it was like, well, I don't know if I can make a living doing music and maybe I can um, learn, you know, maybe I can get a job recording it. And, um, uh, but never really applied that because uh, the hours are crazy and, and all that. So I, you know, I, I, I had, minimum wage jobs and then until the the web came along really and that kind of changed everything for me um it sort of brought all the creativity into one place uh where i could learn by just reading people online and and uh the mystery of design for me kind of eroded away a little bit i think with the web uh and the internet and connecting you know i wish it did Uh, for me yeah, is it same same? No, no. I I still oh, no, feel it like yeah. the, it, it, the. I'm still. I find the whole web very mysterious and alluring and seductive, but really a mystery. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, it well, helps it, to be it, able it, to know how to do yeah. things in the way that you do. I, I oh, I see. I I don't have that same skill set. But you have. But there's so much more, and I, I like like. If we go, I want to. I want to dig into your time at Sterling sure. because this is what's fascinating about you. I think because you've had sort of facets of your career that, on their own, are incredibly impressive, and and uh, and then you add them all up, and it's kind of overwhelming. But you're at Sterling Brands, and you're working with huge companies, uh, Burger King, Identity, and Hershey bar, I think is another yeah, one. Yeah. Uh, and there's, there's a whole bunch of them, right? There's like, <laughs> Hagen uh, yeah. Hagen like, and so basically go to the supermarket and you're, you know, you're looking at Debbie Millman's work. Um, how did you get there? Because that's a whole different, um, uh, you know, going from drawing the Lay's potato chip logo when you're eight to working on brands that are, that are giants, you know, well, I, I would say that um, it was completely circuitous. Um, I graduated college, as I said, with a degree in reading. And my one skill was um, old school layout and paste up because I, I learned that on my student newspaper back in the early 80s. I was the, when I was mm. a senior in, in college, I was the editor of the arts and feature section of the student newspaper. And one of the requirements of the editor was to actually 
make the paper as well. We had to design and lay out the paper. And I very quickly found out just by doing it, how much I loved it and, and loved it maybe even more than editing and, and writing. Um, and when I graduated, I, I needed to be able to make a living. And the only skill that I had, the only marketable skill was layout and paste up. And so I started out as a a layout and paste up girl in a bullpen in a, at a cable magazine and Hmm. worked in the design business for 10 years. Um, I had my own business for a little while with a friend of mine named Cliff Sloan. He has his, he has his own business now. I, I left that business. He ended up selling it and making a lot of money. And I was really, um, confused about what I could do and what I couldn't do. And I wanted so much. And I guess my, if I look back on it, I'd say my pervasive feeling all through the eighties and nineties was, or the first half of the nineties was longing. I just longed for so much and I didn't know how to make it happen. And, um, what I thought was going to be the big job of my dreams, uh, at a company called Frankfurt Gibbs Balkind in the early nineties ended up being a, a really, um, night, ended up being a bit of a nightmare in that the, the person that hired me didn't, didn't really like me very much. And, um, at that point, I would say it was a career low because this was what I thought would be my dream job. I thought this was going to be the job that would change my life and worked really, really, really hard to get it. And then when I did, they didn't want to hire me as a designer. They 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 didn't like my work and they hired me as an account executive. And that meant I had to be managing other designers. And even that was a nightmare. And I mean, not, not that the job itself was a nightmare. It wasn't particularly fulfilling, but being there was hard because I wasn't liked by the boss. And so my mm. advice to people is never go to work for somebody that doesn't like you because it's never, ever going to get better. They're never going to wake up one morning and say, well, I'm really glad I did hire that person. It does not work. <laughs> um, and I stayed there for about a year and then I, I was so unhappy. And I got a cold call from a headhunter. And and so the big theme here now is second second time, well, this was the first time I'd gotten a cold call from somebody that changed my life because the second one was with Design Matters. But I got a cold call from a headhunter who had a job at a branding agency, but it was as a salesperson. So here I'd gone from being a designer to what I considered to be a rung down, which was an account executive. And now I was going potentially another couple of rungs down, not even managing the work, just selling the work and then giving it to somebody else to manage and somebody else to design. But I was so desperate to find another job that I I went on the interview, I got it, and then became a salesperson at a branding consultancy called the Schechter Group in the early 90s, early mid 90s. And for the first time in my life, I was good at something. As much as I dreaded the idea of being a salesperson, I think because of all of the experience that I had in my dad's pharmacy, working on the weekends when I was in college, growing up in that environment full of brands, having that sort of sense of, uh, I mean, drawing a logo at eight years old, I'd had this sort of instinctual knowledge and and understanding and and I don't know allegiance to to brands and branding and so I was really good at it and unfortunately the company was in the middle of an implosion they were merging with interbrand and my boss walked out one day and the creative director walked out and at that point I knew another headhunter and called her and asked her if she knew of anything out there 
And she recommended that I meet with Simon Williams, who is the founder and CEO of this tiny company called Sterling Group. And he had bought the company out of bankruptcy from Michael Peters when it was the Michael Peters Group earlier in the 90s, I guess late 80s, early 90s. And so he was really struggling to make this business come alive. And I was struggling because I had this skill, but didn't know where to put it. And we met and he offered me a job. And I started there in 1995. And it was one of the best decisions that I ever made. I mean, Mm. they needed me and I needed them. And together, Simon and I created this business that for quite a long time seemed unstoppable. I mean, we were just in a, Mm -hmm. on a real, in a real zone together. And we built this company. When I started, it was one small office, maybe less than 20 people. I would say maybe 15, 18 people. And when I left in 2016, we had 150 people in five offices. Wow. And in 2008, we sold the business to Omnicom. And then I stayed on for another eight years after that. Um, and then finally, finally took the big leap into the great unknown to do what I'm doing <laughs> now. So wow. it, was a, it was a great run. It was a great run. And I loved what I was doing. But by the end, I was very disillusioned with the state of branding and the state of politics and felt that I needed to use my whatever talents I had to do something that was a bit more meaningful. Mm, That's interesting. Yeah. Earlier on, I think uh, you had received, and this is kind of uh, unbelievable to me actually, but you had received some, some criticism of some of the branding work that you, that you were doing. Oh, you mean on speak Um, up? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I didn't know about that until recently in my research here, but but I I was kind of shocked at that because uh, to me, you know, working on brands like Hershey and Berg, that's uh, that, that's impressive, and that's sort of like for a someone that's into branding and wanting to do that. That to me, that's like the you know that's where you want to get you know the pinnacle of working with these with these brands that that millions of people are going to see. So I was I was kind of surprised by by that. Um, well, it was a different time. Um, that was two thousand and three, and and what you're referring to for for the people that might not know, I very unexpectedly found that I was being um, taken down by a weblog. It was the first ever design blog called Speak Up, and that year I had been asked to be a juror in AIGA's national competition. AIJ is the American Institute of Graphic Arts. And I actually had been invited to be a juror because I had been rejected from a brand experience group that I had already been on the board of. And when I applied to be on the board again, um, I was rejected when every other single person on the board was accepted. So I was the one person that was rejected from that. And I was really, really hurt by it. They apparently thought my work was too traditional and I was really hurt. I loved being part of that group and I loved working with AIGA at that time. And so when that happened, Rick Raffay, I guess a bit of as a bit of a consolation prize, asked me if I wanted to be a juror in the upcoming competition. 
um, in an effort to really still keep me involved. It was a very gracious and generous thing to do. And so I did it. But then when the book came out, when the annual came out, uh, all the jurors had work in the annual to validate their being a juror. And my work was <laughs> Burger King and some work we did for Star Wars. And so oh, people wow. felt that it was way too commercial and ugly and that I had no business being involved in this prestigious um, competition and that AIGA had sold out to us corporate clowns. And I was referred to as a she-devil who was trying to manipulate AIGA for my own benefit, which, oh you gosh. know, none of this could have been further from the truth. I mean, right. I mean, all right. of this couldn't have been further from the truth. I had actually been rejected by AIGA and Rick was trying to give me a bit of an olive branch to keep me involved. And so at that moment in time, when that article came out in May of 2003, I really felt like the most hated person in design. I felt like everybody in the sort of establishment, which was AIGA, had rejected and, and hated me, except maybe Rick, and everybody in the anti-establishment, <laughs> which was <laughs> speak up, these you know, young kids trying to make a difference and, and take down all the sort of monoliths around, um, had also also hated me. So it was really hard. Um, it was a very hard time in my life. I, I felt really profoundly rejected. Um, I ended up writing in to try to defend myself ever so um, in an ever so dignified manner back then. And I, I think I held my own. Um, and then Armin Witt, the founder of Speak Up, wrote to me separately and, and apologized for calling my work a pair of turds on the internet. Oh, but But not – he didn't apologize – for actually feeling that way. He he actually apologized oh. for, for articulating it in that way. <laughs> wow. But wow. Armin and I have since become really good friends. I'm friends with his entire family. Wow. And he's actually one of my closest friends. And I am the godmother to his oldest daughter. So it's a very happy ending. <laughs> That's incredible. It is incredible. It is really that, that, incredible. That, that, and Armin actually is- designed my website, my current website, DebbieMillman.com. Wow. He designed it, and it's absolutely stunning. Um, so, wow. so yeah, you never know where life is going to take you. You my know, I goodness. say that that worst moment of my life turned out to be the most important because that mm. notoriety um, then parlayed me into being able to write for Speak Up, which I did, which then <laughs> resulted in my meeting Joyce Kay, the then editor-in-chief of Print Magazine, who then asked me to start writing for Print Magazine. And then it um, caused Emily Oberman, who was the president of the New York chapter of AIGA, to take an interest in my work. And then she invited me to be on the board of the New York chapter of AIGA. And then before you knew it, I was on the national board. And then I was the president of AIGA, all of AIGA. So it was it was crazy. I mean, nobody would believe this if it hadn't actually really right. happened. It wouldn't seem possible. That is incredible. Uh, right. I mean the 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 so the the two uh, institutions. And I, I won't actually speak up. Maybe not an institution, but the, these two uh, things that were so critical of you, you ended up <laughs> being a part of, and also the president of. That's just inc- <laughs> absolutely incredible. Um, Life is very got, mysterious, Dan. Oh my gosh! Right? I, I yeah. That's got to feel good, right? After after. <laughs> After um, you, you know, you were saying it was a it was a tough time. Yeah, it uh, you know, does. What was going on? But then to to turn that around, and it then, feels magical, you know, actually. And yeah. you know, I I'm not 
a woohoo kind of person, but I can't help but feel like that was just some sort of strange destiny. Uh, yeah, I I think it was. <laughs> I'm glad it happened that way because I think you you well no I, I shouldn't say that but well tell me if if you know you feel like that uh, that experience helped fuel you know another chapter of your of your career I guess. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and what I can say for people who have experienced or are experiencing either similar kinds of rejection or feelings of not being good enough is try as best as you can to let other people feel what they feel, but don't let those feelings prevent you from doing whatever it is that you really, really want to do. If you really, really want to do it, if you let anybody stop you from from doing something meaningful, then the only person that's going to suffer is you. And it, you know, it might not be the the right avenue or the right moment or the right opportunity, but if you want something badly enough, my feeling is you have your whole life to make it work. And if you feel that if you haven't done it by the time you're in your thirties, so what? So what? I feel like the longer it takes, the longer it'll last. I think that the people that make it really quickly have the then added burden of having to sustain that success for the rest of their lives. Whereas if you're a slow burner and then take time to be able to express what you want to express and, and, and do it in a way that gets the kind of response that you feel is, is important to you, then the longer it takes, then the more likely it is that, that you'll have um, more longevity. You, you'll just be doing it for that much longer. Hmm. That's a really interesting perspective on that, uh, and super encouraging. I think maybe instead of design, I can finally be that rock star. I was yeah, I mean, yeah. even in 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 this conversation. So my real first success, professional success. I mean, I had a couple of other things that I did that I was really really proud of prior, but my first real sort of sense of accomplishment. Um, came when I started at Sterling in 1995. And even that took a few years to manifest. And at that point, I was already in my mid-30s. So, you know, and I didn't yeah. I yeah. didn't really, really manifest something with Sterling until I was in my 40s. Mm. Yeah. There's, there's, give yourself some time and some runway. Yeah. That's, that's wonderful. Uh, Oh, my, as a last question, do you still take cold calls today? Well, I don't get so many. Um, I get a lot of cold emails and I try <laughs> oh, to keep yeah, up with I suppose them. Email, yeah, but I do get the cold call occasionally. I'm always nice to cold callers because I just feel like it's such a hard <laughs> job. You have to be. Um, but I do get a lot of cold emails. The The issue that I have is just keeping up with them, but I do try. Yeah. But I'm not always as, as, quickly responsive as, as I would like to be. Right. right. It's really hard. Yeah. No, it is. It's, it's very hard. You're right. I guess back in the literal cold call days, the phone can only ring a certain number of times. And so, but Dan, you know uh, what I tell people now is if you want to reach someone, the best way to try to get to them is, is by calling because people don't really talk on the phone anymore. I mean, when was the last time you talked on the telephone? 
It's yeah. very rare. We text, we yeah. Skype, we WhatsApp, you know, it's, it's a very different world. And it so is. I, I mean, I remember back in the day when I was doing my first book, had to think like a great graphic designer, I wanted to interview Massimo Vignelli and I had never met him. And I decided I would just call the studio, his studio to um, see if I could speak to an assistant to see if I could arrange to interview him for my book. And wow. he answered the phone. Massimo answered the phone. No way. Really? Talk about a tongue twister. I could barely speak. And yeah. So you weren't expecting him to I was it. not expecting him. And he was really nice and said, okay. And then because I, I was such a clod, when I first met with him and did my interview, um, I thought he pronounced his last name Vignelli. And he said to me, mm. when, just as we were starting the, the interview, he said, no, no, Debbie. It's Vignelli, Vignelli. And I was like, oh, God, I'm such an idiot. I'm such an idiot. Uh, no, but you're not. I mean, you called him and you you took the risk there. <laughs> and, it, and then when it worked and he talked to you, then yeah. that's fantastic. I mean, people, <laughs> given the choice, I think mostly are generous. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think calling somebody is email is is just too hard to keep up with. But calling, uh, yeah, especially if advice. there's a big giant PDF associated with it. I mean, that's just right, right. a real obstacle. Yeah, send people something in the mail that's beautiful, that's going to capture their attention, that yes. is uniquely meant and made for them. Or call yeah. somebody on the telephone. But email is just a lazy way to try to feel like you're being productive. Yeah. That sounded harsher than it is, but it is no, no. pretty true. I, I total I totally agree. Um I think yeah, and, and physical mail, yeah, huge. Uh it's actually it's funny, that's when we started Dribble, um, we sent out uh, you know, uh before it was Dribble really, but we sent out, you know, hand handwritten postcards and a T shirt to people that I wanted to to see, you know, selfishly I just wanted to see what they were working on. So uh, I think it, it in a way, it sort of guilts people into uh, checking something out more than, than an email would. Like, hey, I've got this new thing. Check it out. Uh, I think if you send, yeah, something physical. It'll capture somebody's attention. And if they like it, then they'll remember it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, this has been awesome, Debbie. I can't thank you enough for being on here today. Thank us. you, Dan. I really, really love what you're doing at Dribble, and congratulations for all of your success. It's such a great, great thing that you're doing. Oh, thanks so much. That means a lot. And um, we'll, we're going to keep listening to you on Design Matters and find you at DebbieMillman.com. Keep up the awesome work. Thank you, Dan. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been Overtime, Dribble's official podcast. I'm Dan Cederholm. And thanks for listening to this week's episode. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks again. Thanks again.